Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Simple Human, a company who has just revolutionized the way we handle our trash, literally and figuratively. I don't know about you, but I hate handling garbage. It's sloppy and goopy and up until now, not very well designed. Simple Human has solved these messy situations with their beautifully sleek, touch-free voice and motion sensor trash can. It opens when you ask it to and effortlessly closes when you're done. Listeners to Design Matters can now visit simplehuman.com and enter the promotional code MATTERS at checkout to receive 15% off any sensor can with voice control. Simple Human. It's the smarter, easier way to throw your trash away. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with podcast host Katie Lazarus about her career in comedy and about the gray area of comedians telling off-color jokes. They may say the wrong thing to get to the right thing because that is where they workshop what they're working on. Here's Debbie Millman. As you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by work and career. Not only what creative people think about their jobs, but how the twists and turns of their lives explain who they are. This fascination is shared by another host, comic and comedy writer Katie Lazarus. In front of a live audience in New York City, Katie interviews actors, comedians, media stars, and writers about work. John Hamm talks about how he struggled as an actor in his 20s. Zadie Smith explains how she once flirted with being a cabaret performer and then sings for the audience. Michael Keegan Key talks about improvising with President Obama for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The conversations are also available as a fantastic podcast entitled Employee of the Month. Katie Lazarus joins me today to talk about her own career as a writer, show host, and comedian. Katie Lazarus, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. I'm a big fan. Thank of you. Podcast. Katie, is it true that when you were in the eighth grade, you broke up with your boyfriend because you had a crush on Roger Daltrey, the lead singer of the band The Who? Because you felt guilty for liking two boys? I thought it was unethical to like two people at once. And since I had gone to a Who concert and saw how magical Roger Daltrey was, I figured I should break up with my real boyfriend, Sam Russell, um, and not cause any pain later down the line for him. And uh, how did Sam take that? <laughs> um, Sam, I don't think how uh, he was crushed by this. And of course, um, Obviously, you know, Roger immediately, we got in touch immediately. And, and how long did you guys last? Yes, never. <laughs> <laughs> I, I um, got to go see one more show that he was in, and that was the um, extent of our relationship. Um, but yes, I've had very strict rules, uh, morals, and ethics, and wasn't really clear that. Um, no, that's noble. I think that's that's noble. Or naive. <laughs> you were born into a rather accomplished family. In 1939, your grandfather, Fred Lazarus, persuaded Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to change the date of Thanksgiving. Why? 
So that's actually my great uncle. I was born into the wrong branch. Um, my parents are, are more into, you know, um, my dad's a wonky policy wonk trying to fight for health care for everyone and stuff like that. But yes, that, my great uncle, um, first of all, it's just so crazy the access people had to the president at that time. It's fascinating that they were able to do that. But um, they were 100 percent Jewish and changed the date of Thanksgiving for religious reasons. I'm kidding. They changed the date um, so that there could be more shopping between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, so they made Thanksgiving earlier. Well, they just kept it as a set date. And in fact, my grandfather, it was the same day as a football game just to show that I uh, – and he thought that made no sense as to why you would have Thanksgiving on the same day as a football game. So <laughs> I, I sadly did not inherit the business acumen or the uh, wealth. But I do find that fascinating that these decisions get made the way that they do. It shows how much of these – ritualized holidays and events are just constructs that we've just created. Completely. And and arbitrary and, you know, economically motivated. I believe now I, I might get the actual relatives wrong in terms of their relationship to you, but I believe another family member, your paternal great-grandfather, Simon Lazarus, was president of FNR Lazarus, which eventually became Macy's. And that means your grandfather also invented escalators, which is kind of amazing. Okay, so I think that that's probably great uncles. Great um, uncles. So uncles instead of grandparents. Yeah, I think okay. that was like a great— I'm going to have to go into Wikipedia and correct this. Please do. I did not write my Wikipedia page, and there's a lot of mistakes on it, but but it's still uh, my name. And if I go into Ohio and people see that I'm Lazarus, they get very excited, and I like that very much. It's nice to have people be so excited to meet you at the airport. But I wonder what people would think now, given that— your great uncle changed the date of Thanksgiving. Yes. And then all these decades later, Black Friday has emerged as the day after Thanksgiving to get all your holiday shopping done. Yes. It's kind of perfectly symmetrical. It certainly is an offshoot of it. And there's so many things that they did. They had the first price tag. Um, they had the first commissions for people who worked there. They gave scholarships so that people could finish their education. Going to a department store at that time was considered um, a social activity. And there are many people who have memories of getting dressed up to go. Um, so there are a lot of beautiful things in terms of workers' rights to the price tag, how I named that before it was bartered. Um, but Isn't then, that amazing? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so to just know that you can go out and actually make change and it can mean something. Um, and then on the flip side, you're right. They had the first escalator and people were scared, so they had to get rid of it. And then they brought it back later. And then they went to Galleries Lafayette, I heard, in France and saw that there was like a room where kids could just buy gifts. And this is the most manipulative thing for parents. So basically like kids get to go in. So they had a room at Lazarus Department Store where kids could go in and buy gifts, which is just so unfair to parents because then they're like, OK, we have to spend the money. Yeah, precursor to the Happy Meal. Yeah. So so definitely some beautiful aspects of it, having commissions for and, you know, helping to pay for college tuition, things we don't even think about now since workers have just become so disposable um, to major corporations. Um, and then on the flip side, some other things where you're like, mm, is that really necessary? Let's talk about your nursery school report card. Debbie, you really do your research. <laughs> this is what your teacher wrote about you. Katie has made gains in her ability to focus on a complete cognitive task. In the fall, she was distractible and unable to finish her work without becoming silly. Katie is a great talker and will volunteer to sit in the hot seat and speak on any topic whether she knows anything about her subject 
or not. Earlier in the year, the class was duped into believing her stories. Tell us everything. Um, you, you can decide that that's not you at all, you know, and sort of say, well, that was just one person's interpretation. No, that's you. But I really took that to heart and was so happy when I stumbled upon it because I grew up in a home where the idea of doing anything creative it wasn't seen as like shooting heroin, but it certainly was not on the roster of things to do. And in fact, when I dropped out of my doctorate in clinical psych to do comedy, I think it took my parents like several years before they'd stop asking, so does health insurance come with that audition? And the answer is no. But had I grown up in a different family, in a different home, in a different um, city, because cultural capital to me is as important as, as actual monetary wealth. You know, I might have seen that people do this for a living. People can be graphic designers. People can um, – there's a fartiste I've met, guys. Uh, someone What's who, a fartiste? He uh, makes songs out of uh, fart noises. He was emulating a prior fartiste. I'm not saying that you should go into these things, but I'm just <laughs> saying that there is a world of opportunity out there that I didn't know existed. I understood um, the integrity and importance of giving back, and by integrity meaning uh, how important it is, how vital it is to give back. It wasn't a form of guilt to be socially responsible. I saw it as part of my foundation, and I'm really thankful for that aspect of my learning experience. My grandfather worked with Martin Luther King Jr. And your father worked with Jimmy Carter. And my dad worked with um, Jimmy Carter. So what kind of duplicity did you hit upon (laughs) in your class to persuade the students that something that they were believing was true when, in fact, it wasn't. I wish I could go back in time and imagine what that was. But I I kept that um, nursery school report card and put it on my website sort of as a reminder to me um, to be able to go back to that space where you're just playing and you're just free and it's harder and harder to hold on to and yet so sacred and so important to carve that out for yourself, whether it's real or imagined, to get to that place inside you where you're like, what do I want? And then from there, you can make things up that don't even exist. Were you the class clown as you were growing up in junior high school and high school? No, I was. Um, it's funny. There's there's a uh, false assumption, I think, that comedians are all extroverts and uh, racing around. And I'm, of course, extraordinarily extroverted when I'm comfortable around uh, people one-on-one or in small groups and on stage. <laughs> But no, I was uh, extraordinarily insecure, which is a long way to say I was a teenager. But I I was very insecure and very mercurial and um, sad. About what? I don't know if you ever saw Annie Hall where they go to a doctor and the um, doctor's – Woody Allen's character, Alvy, is very distressed about the world exploding. Um, But – I had a both really beautiful childhood and a really tough childhood in a lot of ways and – I think that there was a lot of things that I had to to deal with. Um, Tell me a little bit about Tina, your live-in housekeeper and nanny. I know for the first 18 years of your life, you saw her more than any other adult. And you wrote very beautifully about this relationship in the New York Times. Oh, thank you. Um, so she actually was hired as a housekeeper and she – I just uh, loved her. She lived in my family longer than I did. She lived in my family for 32 years and – she was the one who would allow me to perform all the time. Like I used to watch Chesperito. So I grew up speaking Spanish at home and um, I'd watch a lot of uh, novellas and um, uh, which are soap operas. And then I'd also watch the show Chesperito, which probably isn't like funny as adults, but as a kid, it was incredible. And then we'd watch I Love Lucy. And 
I, I just feel so lucky to um, understand love and know that it may not always be con- unconditional, but that doesn't make it um, any less meaningful. From what I understand, she had you baptized even though you're Jewish. Yes. <laughs> so yes. tell us about that. I think people in life are complicated and um, I'm – Really, it's why I do my show. I'm now doing a column for The Atlantic um, called Exit Interview about, you know, starting over in that messy breakup after you've been fired or rejected and um, working on a book about sort of the givens that, you know, no one is – it's not a black or white situation. I I was – remember seeing these comments online and they were so – negative, some of them. About what? About like, how can your family do this to this woman? And um, it hurts so bad because, of course, I was showing all of the flaws. And and then, you know, I I was like, yeah, I know. This is really screwed up that we live in a society where social stratification is allowed. And I'm sharing my story in part to let you know that I'm keenly aware of this and would like to work on progress. But at the same time, I mean, I remember getting Tina um, job interviews at other homes and she wouldn't leave. And so it is much more complicated than that. And so it's not that I had this cold, mean mom and this truly loving, like, perfect Mary Poppins nanny. nanny. And in fact, she was really a housekeeper. And I call her that to look at the the effects of women taking care of other women, women's children and things like that. And um, And how hard it was to not be able to name her to others because um, she was the most important person to me in the world. You attended Wesleyan University. You double majored in sociology and psychology. And you also got a master's degree from the university's one-year accelerated psychology program. What were you hoping to do professionally at that time? I wanted to be a shrink. How do you feel about that? I feel really conflicted. Really? <laughs> well, only because I know how talented a comedian you are and think you'd probably have gotten bored telling jokes with your patients. Um. I don't think that I would have been telling them a lot of jokes, although sometimes my therapist will tell me jokes. That's always weird. It's like, stay on that side of the court, please. <laughs> Let's not get too familiar. <laughs> um, yeah, I really loved working with kids, and I did a lot of stuff in social service. And I, I think if, if I hadn't dropped out of my doctorate in clinical psych to do comedy, I, I would have done it. But I am glad that I found something creative. I did. I didn't know that you could do two things at once, as you saw. I didn't know you could have you know be dating Roger Daltrey, the lead singer of the Who, and also Sam Russell when you're in the eighth grade. So, I would say that that was remained true um, when I. And and also just economically, it's even though I had a scholarship for my doctorate, like it's expensive being in grad school and it's expensive being in school. And so I had to really make a decision um, even before I knew whether I was going to make it in in comedy or what that was exactly. You wrote about how you remember being in the school library wondering how many weeks it would take before your body was found and thought, this may not be the right fit for me. How hard was it to completely change your life going from being a doctoral student in clinical psychology to then deciding, I think I want to be a comedian? Um, seeing as I'd only seen comedy once, uh, it was extremely hard. Like I, <laughs> so how did, so where did this idea come from? Did you just wake up one day and think, I think I'm funny and I'm going to make a living doing this? No, um, I was always like a, a little bit of a loon. I know that's shocking for you to hear, <laughs> but um, again, I grew up in like such a normalized world. I remember going. So my best friend was sadly killed by lightning uh, when I was 15, and I, I um, went to go see a, a therapist and. You know, I went in and I was like, I just – I'm sort of like Robin Williams all talking all these voices. And I immediately saw this as a problem. 
now if I had grown up somewhere else, they might be like, there's this thing called voiceovers, and you can be animated characters. Can you do some characters for us right now? No, I cannot, you stupid Aussie. But the point is that I feel like um, it's, you know, it's how that that is interpreted at that age, I guess I want to say. You know, when you're younger, that said, I loved social service, and I loved what I learned from it. So it was, it was not a black or white decision of like, forget this, this stinks. Um, there were a lot of great things to it, and it's not just um, the fact that I made more working in foster care than I do in a for-profit uh, world of entertainment. But that is a factor, too, that I do miss the stability um, and sustainability and feeling like my work was really meaningful in that way. And I'm glad that my show um, offers some meaning I actually read that um, when questioned about the influence your education had on your career, you declared that you learned a lot about modern dance. I did. So, I did. so how important has been has has modern dance been to your your discipline? Um, I think I'm now. I went to go visit my brother in the Middle East. Who, he's a Middle East peace activist, and uh, or he was a Middle East peace activist. Now he does conflict resolution. And I, he only fed me hummus. There was just like a cart outside of his <laughs> his place and that's what we ate for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I couldn't eat hummus for like many years. Now I'm, I'm back um, and that's how I feel about modern dance. It's, it took me a long time uh, but I am now um, able to go and see modern dance and, and not want to um, shoot myself. After you dropped out of school, you moved to New York City and were in a class when someone said, come do stand-up. You're really funny. Really? Is that? I mean, that's what yeah. I found on in my research, and I I couldn't imagine what kind of class was it. And somebody just like, hey, Katie. So, I really learned about comedy when I was in in my doctorate. I got a laptop. This is so unsexy, but I got a laptop. I think and I, was, I got a lap dance. <laughs> that would be amazing. And then I would be like, everyone, go do their doctorate immediately. <laughs> um, no, I got a laptop and I was sleeping with it. Um, you can tell my dating life uh, post uh, the breakup, the tortured relationship that with never Roger. happens with Roger. Um, and so I started writing a fake uh, New York Times wedding section yes. announcement. That was my first um, my first thing that I ever did was like a vows, a fake vows. And, um, and it sort of went viral. It was in the forward. Yeah. And then it got covered everywhere. Um, so I was working on that. And um, I did these workshops that Queen Bees and Wannabes um, is based on, which is a book about bullying. And Tina Fey came down. And at the time, she was a, a younger writer at Saturday Night Live. She um, came down to teach a, a little workshop. Um, and I got to take that. And at the end, she said, yeah, you should do comedy. My friend has this school they've started called UCB. And now, of course, that's Amy Poehler that she was referencing is one of the <laughs> founders of it. But at the time, it, it really wasn't a well-known school. And UBC stands for? UCB is UCB. Upright Citizens yes. Brigade. Um, and that's actually where Employee of the Month really got its wings before. So it was at there and then Joe's Pub for three years. And now we're going back to the Bell House and, and all over, actually. But um, anyway, that was a very long way to say that. Really, it was Tina Fey was the first one who said you should do comedy and go to Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And then I was taking a journalism class because I just didn't know how to break in. And a guy who had worked with me in foster care was teaching writing. And so I thought, that not that the same thing? And so he suggested taking a, a journalism class. And I just want to do a shout out to the teacher there because she still teaches. And I really highly recommend her for anyone who's looking to break into writing. Her name's Sue Susan Shapiro, Sue Shapiro. Um, and she's a fantastic teacher, particularly if you're getting your start a little later in life. 
Late one night as you were preparing for your very first performance, you were on the subway reading a book about comedy and you were approached by someone you thought might be a stalker. Can you share that story with our listeners? Um, that is, you're really, really good at research. Now, if I ever get to go back to graduate school, I'm hiring you. <laughs> um, Done. <laughs> so um, I was trying to waitress and I was coming home from my shift at four in the morning. I say trying to waitress because they were trying to tell me that I was unqualified. They, they said, you're overqualified. And I was like, yeah, but it's going to take a while for my career to come off. Like, I didn't understand that they were saying, like, no, actually, like, an eight-year-old can do this job. Uh, <laughs> we just actually think you have zero skills. But anyway, so I was on the subway, and it's like three or four when you finally get off um, the shift. And I was reading, like, a how-to comedy book. So you have to picture, like— A comedy for dummies kind of thing. Totally. And, like— Think 80s, even though it wasn't the 80s, but just like think like the there was a woman on the cover with massive shoulder pads that are like bigger than her hair and her hair's pretty big. And um, I'm reading this book and this guy's like, I wouldn't read. I wish I could do his New York accent Um, because he also he was he said later he would tell me that he was in Belay, but that he dropped out of Belay to do comedy. And it turned out that he was like in the ABT, like he was like a legit (laughs) dancer. (laughs) And um, but it was so creepy and weird. And he was like, "Uh, I'm a stand up. And, you know, I was just like, who is this guy? Especially at four in the morning. Four in the morning. And it's like the local train. And so then he asked me to tell him my jokes. And I did. And he said, you're going to bomb, which means that you're going to fail. No one's going to laugh at your jokes ever. And that was obviously really reassuring and helpful for someone who has not a lot of confidence. Um, But I went on stage anyway. And thank goodness for that weirdo because he came to that club and I made a a rookie mistake to the booker. It was at Stand Up New York. And I said, like, can I go on kind of early? Uh, You know, and I'd never performed before. He's like, can I – are you allowed to curse on this? Yeah, of course. He's like, you're going to fucking go on when I fucking say if you're fucking lucky. Do you fucking understand me, goddammit? And I was like, okay. Um, And so thank God that that guy Jason who um, had contacted me on the subway um, came – to the see me performance stand up because he came to see me bomb. He came to see me fail, actually. And he thought it'd be really funny to watch me um, be eaten up. Nice guy. Really nice. Comedy is just a very warm community. I it's can, just it's, a really close knit, and there's a lot of egalitarian efforts um, towards women and, you know, women of any color and nationality. Um, there's no homophobia, no racism, no prejudice, no sexism, none of that. It's it's a really liberated no sexual assault. None. Not, there was a day where I was excited because I hadn't had some type of strange interlude with someone in Hollywood, and I was like, oh, that's one guy we never we Kevin Spacey. I am very lucky in that particular instance that I have not had something with him. But yeah, it was every day. It was constant, um, and it's sad. Um, and I think that there are a lot of really funny, talented people who uh, gave up. And I also pulled away um, from it as well. Um, But so in terms of that night, though, I got to go on stage um, at a reasonable time. I went on after David Tell, thanks to that guy, Jason, um, asking the booker to reconsider when he fucking puts me on. Um, And so I performed and it was magical. And you got a standing ovation. And you won a Oh my God! Free trip to San Francisco, and <laughs> yeah, but- you were told you were the next sexy Tina Fey by the Booker. 
So what happened then? Um, and then uh, the booker did not recognize me when I came back the next week. And then I was like, like, you told me I was the sexy <laughs> Tina Fey. And he's like, I'm gay and I don't really know how sexy she is. I just said that it sounded cool. And then the, the New York resident, which had sponsored this contest, put me on the cover of their paper and awarded me a free trip. And so I followed up with them and they're like, oh, we're sorry if the word trip is ambiguous. <laughs> they were going to give me like a tasting meal at a hotel in if I walk to San Francisco from New York, like someone's going to give me snacks, which is like basically <laughs> what I think a tasting meal was. And I tried to follow up with them many times. They never did. But it it was a good intro to comedy in that it's a, it was a really sleazy business um, and full of nonsense and full of people telling you things that aren't true. And you better either really enjoy being on stage or um, not do this. Um, so in that way, it was a very uh, rude awakening, um, but also – uh, I was still so high from performing. It was so fun. How do you go about writing a joke? Debbie, that is like the most serious question I've ever been asked. <laughs> the topic of humor and the way that you asked it was so earnest. Because it's such a mystery to me. I'm not a funny person. And so the idea of actually intentionally being funny is something I can't even comprehend. Well, I'm not the – I am like a lunatic off stage, and um, – I'm not a joke writer per se. It's more that like for me, it, turning it off is the important thing. Like I got in trouble. I went – I was having a doctor's appointment and the doctor asked me um, if I had a history of eating disorders and I was like, I don't – I have don't have anorexia. I don't have the discipline. <laughs> and he then like <laughs> chastised me and it was like, I'm a female. I've like – of course I had eating issues. Like what are you talking about? But so like, you know, not always knowing that that is, might not be the appropriate place um, to say something was uh, something I'm I'm still learning. And I hope by my um, 50s and 60s that I, I finally learned discretion and boundaries. Let's talk about boundaries a bit because of everything yeah. that's happening now in comedy and in the world yeah. around what is appropriate, what is crossing the line. Um, when you insert – the penis uh, <laughs> when it has not been welcome into the vagina. Um, no, and in all seriousness, um, I've I've had the gamut um, of of every. I've had a wealth of opportunity and experience in that end. Um, and what I would say is the one sadness and challenge right now is how do you explore um, jokes and writing things and saying the wrong thing in the effort to get to the right thing is a very different subject matter than um, sexually assaulting someone. These are two totally different areas. I mean the idea that I would have to say to you before we're having this interview, Debbie, please make sure to keep your pants on. Um, is insane to me. I mean, I, I feel like you you know that along with uh, please try to brush your teeth uh, at least twice a day, and if you can floss, please do. So I, I I don't understand why the emphasis is continually put on women to not be raped, and there is not enough emphasis put on telling men to not rape and to understand that line. Um, when you get into the gray area of making inappropriate and off-color jokes, the reason I do believe it is gray is because you may say the wrong thing to get to the right thing. If you think about like a painting or a book, um, all of these things um, get edited and get written over and over and over. And, and the challenge with stand-up, of course, is if someone's on stage, um, they may say the wrong thing to get to the right thing because that is where they workshop what they're working on. However... <laughs> 
there are a lot of caveats there. Like there are a lot of things that I think that people have been ideal. A lot of comedians are idealized as if they're soothsayers, and it's not right to give them that level of idealization. And actually, if you listen to what they're saying, it is prejudice or it is sexist or maybe everything since some some people are equal opportunity offenders. Um, I'm so proud of all the people who had the courage to come out and speak and continue to come out and speak because this is in every field, in every household. Absolutely. Um, and so I'm really grateful to the people, particularly ones who weren't famous who did it because they had so much more to lose. What traits do you have to have as a comedian? What makes a comedian a success? Uh, be funny. So I don't, <laughs> I don't believe in rules. Like I don't. There's no formula. That you know, the only certainty we are all given is that of uncertainty from the minute you're born. And the thing about comedy and empathy and compassion, um, because I do think that these things are actually can be quite interrelated, is that they're messy and subjective, and f- can be really fun. So. I can't say that, like, these are the to-dos. There's some miserable comedians who are really funny. There's some sick people who are really funny. And then there are some perfectly well-put-together special snowflakes who manage to be loons uh, without having any interpersonal uh, issues. In 2006, you got a gig hosting a show called Fresh Meat at Comics, the now-defunct New York City Comedy Club, which you then brought to Ars Nova. How did that show come about and how did you get that gig? Um, Debbie, this is so sweet of you to like ask. I'm so used to asking people about them, so I feel I feel so touched. This is just so much better than any Tinder date I've ever gone on. <laughs> um, that came about because I used to do these huge benefits for Seeds of Peace. Which is a, your brother, right? My brother helped build their coexistence center. My brother's like truly hippy-dippy. Like at his wedding, he's like, I really hope all my Palestinian friends feel comfortable dancing to the klezmer music. And I really hope that the Jews feel comfortable dancing to the Arab music. Uh, he's salt of the earth and luckily just got rid of his ponytail finally. <laughs> um, but yes, so I, I went and did these wonderful benefits because I had, I had this exciting – I had the chance through my brother to go to Gaza and meet all these wonderful families and in Ramallah and um, also – Greek and Turkish Cypriot and the Indian and Pakistani kids and um, Israeli kids and just kids who were growing up in conflict. Um, and so I wanted to do something. And so I would do these benefits here. And Seeds of Peace actually still does those comedy benefits. And from there, a booker saw it. And so she said, we'll give you a weekly show. So I had a weekly show at a 300-seat theater and I got paid to host it. And I'd ask them what makes them a special snowflake, um, their worst experience in the biz and their first joke. And it was just so fun. And sometimes they were so mean to each other. Like this uh, one comedian brought all her submissions for RISD, um, Rhode Island School of Design, because she had really wanted to be an artist. And this New Yorker cartoonist who I also had on the show was like, yeah, you'll never get in. (laughs) And I just – I really enjoyed the interactions between the people after. Um, And there were a lot of really remarkable, talented people on that show, including David Rakoff and Jonathan Ames, who are great writers, uh, New Yorker cartoonists, which I mentioned. And – David Tell, um, and I'm stepping over so many comedians right now on purpose, um, and <laughs> um, Mark Maron. Ah. 
What the fuck? Who was not famous. Yes. Um, in the meantime, you were continuing to apply for jobs and were not getting a lot of responses. And you were really working hard at trying to get writing jobs, trying to get educational jobs. You worked on an educational cartoon for children, but were laid off. What? Why are you having so much trouble finding work? Um Maybe I wasn't talented enough. Maybe I didn't have the right attitude. Um, but I think that uh, showbiz is is really tough. And there are some people who get in and they continue to get more and more opportunities. And I'm sure that this relates to people in other artistic fields that are very small niches. And there's a lot of really talented people competing for spots. And when you go back to looking at, um, you know, the sexual harassment and things like that, if you look at the systemic ways of like, who is it that we give opportunities to? So I'd already had two interviews go viral, had a show that had sold out for seven years. Uh, It took a long time for, you know, the more prestigious uh, newspapers and magazines to even take any interest in me, even though it was already proven. And I cannot count the number of particularly men who've been offered um, talk shows with zero experience. And I've interviewed up to a thousand people and haven't even had an audition for it. So I can't really answer that question because I'm not in a position of leverage. But what I can say is I've had a lot of fun creating the show in the meanwhile. And there are a lot of shows that are hosted by males um, who happen to be white um, that are really good. So it's not that they don't deserve those spaces, but um, I think there are like, what, nine zillion shows on television. I'm sure there's space um, for other people, too. Well, let's talk about Employee of the Month. You started it in 2010. It is a talk show about dream jobs wherein you interview people with enviable careers. What made you decide to start it? Um, because I couldn't figure out how to break in. And I, I wanted to hear from people who had. And so I just started interviewing um, people I admired. And I admired social activists and documentary filmmakers and Muppeteers who doesn't like I – mean, first of all, it is ex- – that's an incredible amount of work on your tricep, by the way. <laughs> and it's a really hard job. And um, – and then comedians and, and the like. And it was so fun. Stephen Wright was my first interview. I don't know if you know that comedian. Yes, of course. He's so deadpan. He's very deadpan. He would ask you, how do you, const- how do you construct a joke, Debbie? Where do you think I got that from? Katie. Uh, is from him? No. Oh. <laughs> but I was that so was excited. good, right? I was just told a joke. But you can laugh. And so you have a sense of humor there. That's true. I do laugh a lot. I do. I'd rather be able to laugh than make other people laugh. It's, it is a gift to be able to do that. I just tend to do it unwittingly. Well, I enjoy it very much. Um, Employee of the Month is both a live show as well as a podcast. You started the podcast in 2012, and The New Yorker magazine praised the show for your decidedly unorthodox interview style and your in quotes, extremely notable guests. So I want to talk to you a little bit about both of those things. First, how did you first start getting your notable guests? When I started my podcast, basically, I asked my friends to be on the show. How did you, was it just your friends, like your friends with Jon Stewart and your friends with Gloria Steinem? And Gloria Steinem and Jon Stewart and I, last night, we were just putting mud masks on each other's faces (laughs) in my uh, one-bedroom apartment that does not have a dishwasher, washer, dryer, like within seven blocks. It was just the three of us. It was really fun. (laughs) Um, No, I started out, um, so, so when you said you asked your friends that's what i'm that's part of what i'm talking about in terms of cultural capital and like knowing the parlance or the language
language. Like, you were three people were listening to my show back in in two thousand and five. You started out and just hit the floor running. So I had done the show Fresh Meat for many years. I'm 187. And I had been doing that show for a long – I did that show for four years. How I started was creating something that I was asking questions I didn't know the answer to. And it definitely speaks to like a lot of people because there's so many tropes about how to succeed and it comes from highly successful people. And um, I'm glad that as someone who isn't as successful, I can dig a little deeper. Talk about your decidedly unorthodox interview style. Well, I think I just I hinted at it right there. Yeah, but what – what? yes, you did hint at it, but I want to do more than just hint at it. Okay. I really want to understand where you get the balls to ask Kurt Anderson how it felt to be fired from New York Magazine. Let's, let, I'll just be really clear about it, okay. my intention. That's very helpful. Um, so that – exactly what you just did is, is how I do that. It was, it's with honesty. And it is um, – I am not out to get anyone. Um, but the fact is, and that's why I'm working on this column, forthcoming column for The Atlantic called Exit Interview, uh, being fired, rejected, pushed out, um, having to start over. Maybe uh, you make less than a nanny costs. Maybe you – you know, like all these kinds of decisions, um, if you want to have children there. You know, all of those things are real and people don't talk about them. And so I was asking him in earnest. He was someone who had bounced back from this quite well. <laughs> so I wasn't worried that he was going to feel fragile about this. But it doesn't mean I always do the right thing and say the right thing. Sometimes I, you know, probably st- I step on my feet. As soon as I wake up, usually I just start tripping. So uh, not on ass. I would like to. <laughs> I would like to. I would like to. That's that's for 50. Um, but so it is it, – these are genuine questions. Is what It was what I would say. It doesn't mean that I haven't asked some glib questions I have. But just the same way you said, well, no, no, I really want to know. It's true. How did you get Gloria Steinem to say the F word? I didn't encourage her to. She said it. <laughs> no, it's hilarious. Was, was it really – were you really intending for her to say the word feminism as yes. opposed to fuck? Yes. <laughs> she just assumed the F word yes. was fuck. Yes. That was hysterical. I think that she would have been – That's I think, one of your finest moments. <laughs> it really is. I think Gloria Steinem would have been a stand-up in another uh, era, actually. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a really great – she's a consummate performer. She's also like a Kennedy. Even though she grew up with no money, she had a really hard childhood. Like, she's so graceful and sophisticated. I feel like she's like royalty. I do, too. I think she has similar hands as to, to Barbara Streisand. They both have those nails and they have that sort of – Hers are not as long as Barbara's. Babs, really? Uh, Barbara's are we'll have like, to compare. Oh. Let's compare. You once played a woman in a mikvah in yes. a Daily Show sketch about a prequel to the film Hot Tub Time Machine. So two questions. How did you meet Jon Stewart? And can you explain to our listeners what a mikvah is? Um, so I, even though I grew up 100 percent Jewish and you have a hint into my background that I was baptized, I, I went to Christian schools. Uh, I also meditated with my cousins and their guru since I was a young kid. So I uh, was exposed to a lot of religions but didn't know a lot about my own per se. Um, so I didn't really learn about mikvahs until I came to New York. Um, and they are baths uh, where um, women of your and my persuasion, um, people who have horns growing out of their head, go – to cleanse themselves uh, every month 
um, and also from their period sand down the and uh, sand down their horns. horns. Yeah. Um, it's for for Jew, Jewish women to cleanse themselves before their and after their periods, I believe. Yes, and before weddings. Uh, sounds like a spa we should all take advantage of. <laughs> um, so that actually wasn't a prequel to Hot Tub Time Machine. Those were two separate things. But I, I was in a little sketch um, for The Daily Show. Um, and that was How'd you get that scene. gig? A gig is like a very, very, very generous term for um, how did you have time in the middle of the afternoon to be naked in a hot tub with Rob Corddry and Julie Klausner? And that I had time for uh, because a peer uh, – you know, when you do stand-up – uh, some people have day jobs working on shows, and so they asked. You got the former New York Times executive editor, Jill Abramson, tell you she has two back tattoos. Four tattoos. Oh, four. Okay. Two of them are the newspaper's T insignia and a crimson Harvard H, both of which represent, quote, the two institutions that have shaped her. Um, I'm wondering if you might have asked her if she had any regrets about the New York Times logo imprinted on her body, given she is no longer working there. So that was her last interview before she left the New York Times, luckily not related. <laughs> um, <laughs> and again, I was asking her and I had no idea that she had a New York Times tea, um, which sort of is antithetical to journalism if you think about sort of the freedom of the press and the idea of branding was so fascinating to me. Um and the Harvard H tattoo just um, reinforces a lot of terrible stereotypes about Harvard grads. It, it's hard for me to, you know, some t- tattoos are, are art and some tattoos are like uh, what they do on cows and, of course, the Holocaust. Um, and so I was sort of fascinated um, that someone who's not of a certain generation where tattoos became very common had all these tattoos on her Um and I cannot imagine what that's like after she left the New York Times. But she did comment on it, I believe, in an article and, and said that she's still happy it's there. So she is wearing her war wounds and sees the complexity in jobs um, and saw that she got a lot out of working at the New York Times. I'm paraphrasing. Good for her. <laughs> You've also written for the movies. You worked um, on the 2011 film The On Time Show with Petunia van de Twerp. And in 2014, you worked on the movie Let's Ruin It with Babies. Uh, these films have very different audiences. What's it like writing for film? So Petunia, um, the so the On Time Show with Petunia van der Twerp was a talk show I wrote and voiced um, for puppets who are stuck at home. So it's just an online web web show, um, and it was a lot of fun to do. And I was in the movie Let's Ruin It with Babies. I was an actress in it. And so how did that happen? I didn't actually write for it. You didn't write it. You were just just an actress. Yes. Just an actress. I saw a picture of you on the red carpet. Okay. Um, That may have been from a different red carpet because sometimes I do red carpet events where I'll interview people. It's the worst. I've been stepped on by so many publicists. Like the number of – I can tell you which heels are worse in terms of how painful they are later. <laughs> Katie, my last question is about your acting career after your uh, stint in Let's Ruin It with Babies. Actually, before that, I understand you have an uncredited credit as an extra in the movie Clueless. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. Um, at the time, I was taking a class at Occidental College in Los Angeles, and uh, I was late to class, and they were filming 
um, and they made me uh, walk again in the shot, and I was very excited because I'd never been in the movies before, um, and I was late to that class, and the teacher was not happy, but I was. What part of the movie are you in? There's just a scene where she's like, they're walking through the quad, and they go over like all the different groups of kids, and I got to be one of the kids. I got to be one of the cool kids. Well, I actually don't know if I was that cool, but I got to be in it. The, the important thing, I was, the, I was near the cool kids. Before we go, tell us about what you're doing with Employee of the Month. When are you taping your next episode, and who are you talking to? Employee of the Month is, is going on now as a podcast. Um, so I just had Rebecca Traster on, and that episode will be this week. And she writes for New York Magazine and I think is just a phenomenal writer. Um, and I strongly encourage anyone to listen to it, uh, particularly people interested in journalism and also just finding their voice because I think that it's relatable to a lot of people. Of She really learned the craft before she developed her own point of view. And um, – so that episode will be airing. And then the live shows will be back in February um, and then in April as well. And you can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com, um, get on the mailing list. And, um, yeah, and that's a great way to find out about Employee of the Month. Or you can go to follow me on Twitter at, at Katie Lazarus. Katie, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. And thank you for bringing so much wit and humor to the world. Thank you. That means That means the world to me. Thank you, Debbie. To find out more about Katie Lazarus, in addition to what she just told you, you can visit her website at LazarusRising.com. And you can also subscribe to her podcast, Employee of the Month, on iTunes. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters. Happy Bat Mitzvah. (laughs) And I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to DebbieMillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.